0: Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Two soldiers, both on opposite sides of a war. They meet, they fall in love, they hook up, and then they flee from their respective armies knowing... That they will spend the rest of their lives on the run. Oh, and they make a baby. All of this happens before page one. I mean, talk about an epic saga. (laughs) Woo! I apologize for that. I think you'll find this a bit more interesting. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just Another Fanboy, the podcast with too many comics to read. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and I'll tell you what, if having too many comics to read is the only problem I face, then I will truly know happiness. So... The votes are in, and if you have no idea what that means, allow me to explain. I recently, over the last week or two, I don't remember how long ago it was, I put up a poll over on Twitter. I sent the same poll to the folks over on the newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, and put the same poll up over on the Patreon for my good folks over there. And I just simply asked the question, what should I read next? and talk about on Just Another Fanboy, and I gave everybody four choices. Saga, Volume 1 from Image, Once in Future, Volume 1 from Boom, Black Hammer, Volume 1 from Dark Horse, and Something is Killing the Children, Volume 1 from Boom. And based on the title of this episode, you know that Saga, Volume 1, won the vote. I had 21 votes total. Saga got seven of those. Once in Future and Black Hammer tied with five, and then Something is Killing the Children got four votes. Now, those remaining three will be, well, I'm going to do another poll. I'll send that up. Send it up. Send it out. Set it up. Both. Send it up. That's what I'm going to use. I'll do that later today. If you are a member of the Patreon, the poll's already there, folks. And if you subscribe to the newsletter, Steven says stuff, which really everybody should do. It's free. It's a Substack. It's a free Substack. But if you're a subscriber, you've got the poll there as well. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of context here because recently I got my first humble bundle, which I'm really happy I said that correctly, because whenever I say it in my head, I say humble bumble, which is the, uh, a line from the, the old Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer stop-motion animation Rankin and Bass Christmas special with the, uh, the abominable snowman and Cornelius, the treasure hunter, refers to the monster as the Bumble. And at one point, when the elf who always wanted to be a dentist pulls the Bumble's teeth, he is referred to as one humble Bumble. But I did my first Humble Bundle, and it was celebrating, I don't know, it was like the the 10 years of, or the 10th year, not, not 10 years of Image Comics, because they've been around a lot longer than 10 years. They've been around for 30 years, but I think I think it was the 10th year of Image Comics is what they were celebrating, but even that doesn't sound right. I don't remember. I don't remember what they were selling. All I know is I got a crap ton of Image books, which included the first 9 volumes of saga for a well basically i the the price was about as much as you would spend on one of those volumes and i got the first 9 from what i understand there are actually 10 volumes in the series the 10th volume being the newest one saga went away for a bit and it just recently came back to uh, either add on or finish the story i don't know since i've never read it before until i just read volume 1 But when I picked that up, I thought to myself, here's something that's been around for 10 years at this point, and you've never read it. So first of all, what's up with that? Because Steven, my boy, you handsome devil, you, everybody talks about this comic. Why haven't you read it? Actually, that's not at all how the voice in my head, that's not what they sound like. They go, the voice in my head sounds like this. Well, you ain't never read Saga before. What's up with that, sonny boy? I mean, that thing came out 10 years ago and everybody's talking about it and you're just some dumb idiot that just sits around continuously not reading the book. That's, that's what the voice in my head sounds like. Anyway, anyway, I thought to myself, what other books have I not read that I should be reading? Not only that, what other, you know, what books do I have from Comic-Con, com- 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 from Flabadoo, from Orphic Dugan, from Comixology that you've either borrowed as a Comixology Unlimited member that is still just sitting in your library waiting to be read, or you picked up during some amazing sale and again is just sitting in your library waiting to be read. And I went through and I chose three of those books, and the poll had you vote on which one I was going to read. Now, I will say Of the four that were in the poll, Saga, Saga is the only one I I truly have not read. I've actually read the first volume to Once and Future, Black Hammer and Something is Killing the Children, but I I never went any further. And it's been such a long time that I feel like if I'm going to get into one of those books and talk about it on the show, I should start over. But you'll get a chance to vote to see uh, what I'm going to read next. But. Let's get to the subject at hand. Back to the subject at hand. Saga Volume 1 was published by Image Comics on October the 10th, 2012. It collects issues 1 through 6, which were published between March and August of 2012. It was written by Brian K. Vaughn. Fiona Staples is the artist, and the letterer is Stephen Finch. And warning... This is a mature reader's book. There is plenty of graphic scenes of sex and violence and a big old slew of dirty words in this book, which uh, I don't have a problem with, obviously, because I read it. But being a sci-fi fantasy type of book, I don't want anybody just handing it to their children and saying, here's a fun book about some space adventurers. Because just a few pages in, they're going to see some stuff you probably don't want them to see. So let me give you uh, the synopsis, not really the synopsis, the blurb about this book from Image.com. And this is what they have up uh, to describe the entire series. And there's no spoilers in it for anything that comes after Volume 1. So, But I will be spoiling stuff in Volume 1 if you haven't read it yet. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and go, it was released 10 years ago. What's your problem? Because Uh, I just read it myself, so I'm not going to be throwing stones while I'm living in a house of glass. But ImageComics.com describes it thusly. Saga is an epic space opera slash fantasy comic book series created by writer Brian K. Vaughn and artist Fiona Staples and was published monthly by Image Comics. The series is heavily influenced by Star Wars and based on ideas Vaughn created, both as a child and as a parent. It depicts two lovers from long-warring extraterrestrial races, Alana and Marco, fleeing authorities from both sides of a galactic war as they struggle to care for their newborn daughter, Hazel, who occasionally narrates the series. So I'm going to do my best here to jump back and forth between some of the the notes I put down, I, I put a bunch of stuff down in regard to who the characters are and the settings and and and, and that kind of stuff. But I'll say right off the top of my head, um, or off the top of the, the the discussion, whatever you want to call it, I really quite enjoyed this book, and I wanted to jump right into volume two right away. But I needed to sit down and and record this episode first. I. When I talk about a book, whether I'm going to talk about one issue or one volume, I always prefer not to read ahead so that doesn't influence anything I may say while I'm talking about the issue or volume that I'm talking about because stuff happens later in books that are hinted at early on and questions come up early on that are answered later and I don't I don't want to know that stuff. I don't want to uh Influence the way I'm going to talk about it. So let's talk about Alana and Marco. First of all, Alana is a soldier from Landfall, which is the largest planet in the galaxy and leader of what's called the Coalition. The folks on Landfall have wings, but only the men can fly because the females wings are weakened. Not long after birth in a ceremony they call wing bleeding. Uh, Alana mentions that in the book, in this first volume, at least the, uh, the, the ceremony, but don't really explain what that is. Marco, well, all right. So Landfall has a, a moon and the moon is called Wreath. And there are a, a race of beings, indigenous to Wreath, who live on that planet who the folks over at Landfall refer to as the Moonies, the the people who live on Wreath are magic users. They believe in and uh, practice magic, and it's Wreath that Landfall is is in a war with, and it, the war has become so massive that it has spread out to all the planets across the galaxy. And there are a number of occasions in this first volume where they talk about. Entire planets being decimated, uh, you know the populations of entire planets being decimated or wiped out altogether during this war. Marco is from Wreath. He's got uh, sheep horns on his head. Most of the every character in this book that we've met that is from Wreath also have horns on their head, but they're diff. Some of them look like uh, antelope horns or. In like I said, in Marco's case, he has these curled ram horns or sheep horns on his head. He was <laughs> he was taken prisoner by the coalition of landfall, and he actually surrendered to them. He was a soldier on the on the opposite, you know, for the army for the the wreath army, but he surrendered to the landfall coalition as a conscientious objector. He uh, meets. Alana, who was a guard at the prison or detention center that he was being held. And again, they hook up and they do the deed, and she becomes pregnant before page one of this book even begins. And in fact, the book opens up with her in labor having the child. The two of them are on the planet Cleave, and they're in some kind of it's almost like a, a mechanic's garage where they're hiding out and it's, you know, it's dirty, it's got oil spots and junk, you know, picture, just go to your basic mechanics garage. And I'm not talking about one of these franchise garages that uh, all look the same across the United States, but just your basic employee owned or uh, self-employed mechanic. A lot of those places are not, <laughs> are not sterilized. They're not uh, conducive to the delivering of a baby. And it's as their child is born, who has the wings and the horns, it's as she is born that soldiers from the coalition show up to arrest them. It's here that we learn that Marco, who carries a sword, has taken a vow of nonviolence. Alana has no such issues. She's fine. She's fine. Dealing out a bit of violence, but all she has on her is a, like a stun gun. I think they called it a heartbreaker, but they do manage to escape and they escape into the wilds of Cleve. They, they're given a map by the, uh, the owner of the garage who had also sold them out to the, the coalition because he needed the money, but he feels bad about it. So he, He kind of helps them. It's like he leads the soldiers to them, but then he ends up helping Marco and Alana to escape. And he gives them a hand-drawn map of the wilds of Cleve, which Marco explains contains what they refer to as the the horrors of Cleve. And so he's a little leery about going out there into the wilds because he doesn't want to meet up with one of these horrors. But according to the map, There's a place on there called the forest of rocket ships. And if they want to get off this planet and make a life for themselves somewhere out there in the galaxy with their, their new daughter, they're going to need a spaceship. And where else are you going to find a spaceship on the planet cleave, but the forest of rocket ships. In the meantime, we meet a character by the name of Prince robot four. He's a member of the Royal family. His parents are the, are, uh, King and Queen Robot from the Robot Kingdom. He is a veteran of this war. He just got back from a very dangerous battle or conflict or whatever that he managed to escape alive. And he was looking forward to retirement with his wife, Princess Robot. And if you've not read this, if you've not seen any images from this the robots basically are they look like humans, uh, but they their heads look like uh, old CRT computer monitors from back in the 80s, which I found very appealing for some reason. But he, after he comes home and he's having some very graphic, intimate time with uh, his wife, the princess, he is uh, he's given a, a summons from his father to go back out and track down these two fugitives but most importantly to bring their daughter back there's something about the daughter that you know the baby that everybody wants for some reason because we also learn in the book that the the other side the the moonies they hire a a, a number of what they refer to as freelancers which are basically bounty hunters they are licensed they're government sanctioned it sounds like and the first one we meet is called The Will, and apparently all these freelancers have names like this. It sounds like maybe when they become a freelancer, they have to take up one of these names, or the name is given to them. They don't go into that at all in this first volume, but it is hinted at that they have a name like that, because the, another one that we meet is called The Stalk, as in S-T-A-L-K, as not like a stalk of corn, I'm assuming, but more like stalking you through a forest to then lop your head off. But there's a moment when the will introduces himself as some somebody says, uh, you know, right this way, Mr. And then they kind of do a dot, dot, dot. Like that's your, that's my social cue to you to give me your last name. And he goes, not Mr. The, the will or something like that. And they go, ah, freelancer. So obviously that has something to do with being a freelancer, those names, but he has a, Sidekick, which is a large alien cat that he refers to as Lying Cat. And anybody that lies in the cat's vicinity, the cat knows and just kind of goes lying when, when a lie is being spoken. And while that is a big help to the will, especially when he might be negotiating a contract, Lying Cat also points out anytime he's lying as well. So. That can also hinder him. So when they they escape into the wilds of Cleve and they're actually met out there by one of the other freelancers, the Stock, who at first appearance is a just like a, a, a cream white armless female with a big like flowing voluminous wide dress on, uh, but she has she has nothing on from the you know on her torso so her chest is free for everyone to see but we learned quickly that underneath the dress is the body of an, an alien spider with many arms and claws that are clutching weapons and whatnot and apparently the stock is really good at her job uh, we also learn that she and the will hooked up at one point and after the will is given this contract to hunt Alana and Marco down, and he is also told that that those two uh, are to be killed, but that the baby is not to be harmed and to bring the bring the baby back. So again, both sides want the baby. They want Hazel for some reason. They just don't explain why yet. In volume one, but after the will takes this assignment, this contract, he does learn from the person hiring him that they have also hired many other freelancers. He's not the only one. Who has taken this job? But whoever completes this job will be paid a lot of money, and he's actually also given like a credit card, basically that has unlimited credits or whatever on it. And uh, he's told that he can use that to fund his mission, basically. And then upon completion, he's going to get a big old payload. Well, back in his spaceship, he learns from his agent or his representative or whatever that. The stock was also hired. And once he learns that, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to be a part of this. I don't want to see her again because they used to be lovers and he's in love with her. And he mentions that anybody that she goes after, she's going to get. So he's not even going to bother. And he goes to a place called Sextillion, which is a I guess a prostitution planet. And it's there that he meets uh, a six year old girl that they just refer to as Slave Girl, who apparently is owned by one of the madams and ha- basically has been sold into sexual slavery. And the will rescues her, and he's about to leave the planet when the madam tracks him down and explains to him that he's not going to be able to take her off planet because they inject something into their slave's blood that when they, they leave the boundary of the planet, The blood in their veins harden and they die. And so the only way he's going to be able to rescue this little girl is to pay for her, which was uh, like just a big amount of money, 600,000 credits or something. I I don't remember, Um, but they they confiscate his credit card at the same time as, I guess, payment for the trouble he's caused already because he kills at least one employee, a pimp, basically as he's rescuing this little girl and there's a, a couple of moments during his interactions with first the pimp and then the madam in which they question his i guess his moral code because this is a guy who has chosen a profession in which he hunts down and kills people and he has a reputation and according to them he has killed not just men but women and children so they're Their questioning of his morality code is so it's okay to kill children, but it's not okay to to sell them into uh, sexual slavery. And of course, the will is like, "Do you even hear what you're saying?" And uh, anyway, he is very he's very invested in rescuing this little girl, but he knows he can't just take her off planet. He's got to buy her. He doesn't have enough credits to do that. So he finally contacts. the stock she had at one point contacted him because she wanted to partner up to go after Alana and Marco. And he just turned her down flat because he's in love with her. She didn't know that. And he doesn't want to be around her because he's in love with her. And she doesn't seem to return his affections, though they did sleep together. But he calls her and says, all right, let's partner up. I need to borrow money. And he's trying to explain to her why. Uh, but then she's She's taken out of the equation. I'll just put it that way. I don't want to spoil too much. Uh, but that in essence is kind of the, oh, I forgot one of one of the most important characters. We meet the horrors of Cleve. And what they are are the ghosts of the indigenous people from the planet. Anytime somebody from the planet Cleve is killed, they come back as a ghost and are they have various abilities to project images in other people's brains so they think they're seeing certain things and they're not and it's they they do this to help protect the planet and it's because of this that there is this reputation that there are these horrors out in the wilds that will you know slaughter whole camps of people and blah 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 well when we meet some of them it's basically a group of kids who are are uh, as ghosts we see what they look basically they take the form as ghosts of how they looked when they died. So if they were killed violently and have limbs missing and eyeballs hanging from their face, that's how they look as ghosts and one of them who has the entire bottom half of her body missing and her entrails and whatnot sticking out of the lower half of her body, you know falling out of her torso and she can she she's a ghost so she levitates she ends up helping Alana and Marco and in fact there's a moment where Marco is injured to the point that he's going to die and he needs snow he he has a spell that can heal himself but in order to the main ingredient is snow and so Alana has to take him and their their newborn baby to this mountaintop to where there is snow. And Isabel tells her that there's a way they can get there faster. She basically knows of a, a magical path up there, but she's not going to show them. She's not going to help her unless Alana agrees to take Isabel with them when they leave the planet. But the only way one of these ghosts of Cleve can leave the planet is if they are tethered to the soul of a living person who's not indigenous to the planet. And I don't remember why, but for some reason it can't be Alana or Marco. It has to be baby Hazel. And in the end, Alana agrees and they take Isabel with them. She shows them, you know, she takes them to the, to the mountaintop. They get the snow. Marco is saved and they, they manage to leave the planet. And Isabel is probably one of my favorite characters so far. I love Marco and Alana. I love the two of them. I think already just in these six issues, the way Vaughn writes these two characters and their relationship together uh, feels completely real to me. They, despite the wings on her back and the horns on his head, they they feel like real people. And while I often enjoy ridiculous concepts ridiculous premises, silly, almost over-the-top type characterizations that are just so ridiculous, whether they be violent or unintelligent or, or whatever. I do enjoy that kind of stuff. But I also really enjoy when you have characters that feel real, especially in a fantasy, sci-fi type of situation. I've always enjoyed that. That's some of my favorite stuff. And these two characters feel very real to me. They feel like real people. And the fact that it says in the description of this book that Vaughn conceived this idea when he was uh, a child and as a parent, it's apparently ideas, this world that he would often imagine when he was a kid, a fantasy world with spaceships and dragons. And as he got older and became a parent, he started to toy with the idea of parents being caught in the middle of a war and having to try and survive with their child, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, that's how he came up with the, the concept for saga. And you can very much tell that this is written by somebody who has a child who has experienced the, you know, being in a relationship, being in love, having a child together and how that, you know, how they interact and the, the, the kind of things that, that, happens around them and the way they think and the way they talk to each other. And and it's, 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 again, it feels very real. I'm really, really enjoying it. There's a reason why this book is so popular. Not sure why I took so long to read it. I mean, probably because it was coming out when I wasn't really reading a lot of comics or at least wasn't buying a lot of comics. I was getting stuff from the library or through Comixology Unlimited. And I just kind of, I would have come into this in the middle of it and, Typically, at times like that, I tend to just like to kind of wait till it's over. And then I just kind of forgot about it. But it's a wonderful book. And Fiona Staples, who I feel like the only thing I really know her from is as a colorist. I didn't realize that she was a, you know, an artist as well. I mean, a colorist is an artist. I don't want to say that. But I didn't realize that she actually was the full package. She would be, I guess, in the comic book world, a triple threat is she can do the pencils and the inks and the colors. Uh, th- the book is very nice to look at. I don't know how I would explain her style. It's very reminiscent of, you know, you've kind of got a Dan Mora in there. You've got a Cliff Chang in there. There's just, it's, it's, really, it's really nice to look at. I really enjoy the art in this book. And you got beautiful art with a wonderful story. And of course- this is going to be a popular book. I don't know what else I really want to say about it. But again, as soon as I finished volume one, I almost immediately started reading volume two because it ends in kind of a weird cliffhanger, not a, uh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are they going to die? Kind of cliffhanger, but more of a, holy crap, here's a completely new situation. This should be kind of fun, kind of cliffhanger. And when it comes to to all the characters, really the the main characters that are up front in this book, Alana, Marco, Isabel, Prince Robot 4, The Will, even Lying Cat and Hazel. Because Hazel, though she's a newborn, because she's narrating this story from somewhere in the future, which is one of those things that because that device is being used, we know that Hazel survives whatever it is they're going to go through. And that's OK. That doesn't ruin anything for us. I know I've often heard, maybe not often, but I, I have heard a number of times people lament the fact that uh, when they have a story like that, that's being narrated by one of the characters, that you can't become invested because you know that character is going to survive. Otherwise, why would they be narrating? But there's a couple things that I think a lot of folks forget. A, while that may be true. You don't know what's going to happen to any of the other characters and how that's going to affect the narrator's life. We don't know what the narrator's life looks like at the time they are narrating that story. They could be in prison. They could be in a hospital bed that is, you know, with just hours left to live. This could be uh, you, you just don't know where that narrator is and what their life looks like. At the time that they're narrating, sure, they survive, but what do they become? And how does the story that they're telling how does that affect how the narrator has turned out? So instead of having that investment where it's like, well, is this character going to make it? here's Here's one of our main characters. Are they going to make it through this story? Which, look, 99 point99 percent of the time, your main character is going to survive. I think anybody that goes into a a, a story wondering if your main character is going to survive, they're, they're going to survive. It's only the only time you get, I don't want to say the only time, but but normally when you have somebody that is perceived to be the main character of a story at the very beginning, sometimes you will have those situations where that is the author tricking you So that they can then kill that character off and shift your focus over to one of the quote unquote supporting characters who is actually the main character of the book or the story or the movie or the TV show or the comic book or whatever. But usually when that happens, that person dies pretty quickly. So yeah, 99.9% of the time, that investment that you're putting into this book thinking, oh my gosh, I wonder if this character is going to survive or... I can't be invested in this book because the character is narrating. So I know they're going to survive. Well, the character, the main character, the protagonist, the person that the entire story is based around is probably going to survive. And if they die, it's at the very end of the story. And the very same thing can happen to a narrator. Duh. The narrator may be narrating the story that leads them to the point that they are at now as they're narrating, and then that becomes the present time of the story, and that's when you wonder, is it, are they going to survive? And and yeah, again, chances are they're gonna. So the, so none of that, that's never bothered me. And so while Hazel, like I said, is a newborn, she's very much one of the main characters because she's narrating. And her voice, the story, and the way she is telling it, I, I, I'm really enjoying that. One of the things that they do with the art and i don't know whose decision that was uh, i don't know if it was the the letterer who made this artistic choice or if it was fiona staples or brian k Vaughn or all three of them got together and made this decision but the narration itself is not written in text boxes as you would normally see it's almost like hand drawn script that's just drawn over the art you know just written in over the art so it's not um it's not inside something. So it, to me, makes it feel like it, uh, it's actually more of, a, more of a part of the story. Did I say that right? I always feel like I'm saying phrases wrong. It's, more, it's, it's, a, a, it's a bigger part of the story. It's, it's like the voice itself is one of the characters. And if this was a, a movie or a television show, it feels more like you're listening to the narrator instead of reading what the narrator is saying, if that makes any sense at all. But it was just a, uh, it was, it was an idea, a tool that they used that I know I've seen before. I don't think this is the first time a comic book has done that where they didn't enclose the narration inside of boxes like little prisons and just let the narration be out there as if the narration was part of the scenery. Basically fairly certain i've seen it before but i i really enjoyed it in this book i uh it really it really fit especially the 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 voice of hazel and i don't know i don't they don't really make it clear uh what age hazel is when she is narrating this for some reason my brain has already this has already ha dong living in a world where my tongue don't work My brain has already decided that narrator Hazel is a teenager. And uh, I'll be interested to know if, A, we actually do catch up to the narrator's present and see Hazel at that time in her life. And then if we do, if she's a teenager, because that's the way I'm hearing her voice in my head. And I'm also very interested to see her relationship, to see if we have, you know, see if we We'll see her age in any way and see how uh, her relationship with Isabel, this ghost that is now a part of her, who they basically refer to as as Hazel's babysitter. She even refers to Isabel as her babysitter in the narration, though, when the sun comes up, Isabel goes away. She only comes out at night. So she's kind of the night shift, which I don't know. I just it's very clever. A lot of this is very clever. And that's not surprising. From Brian K. Vaughn. I've yet to read a Brian K. Vaughn book that I didn't like, which is weird because I don't seem to seek out his stuff. When I come across it, I'll read it and then I love it. And yet I'm not actively going out there and going, all right, I got to read the next Brian K. Vaughn book. And yet I know, just based on what I've read by him at this point, that I'm probably going to like most anything that he writes. So, I don't know why I'm not out there seeking out his stuff. Probably because I have too many comics. Just too much to read already and the idea of adding more to that stack, that digital stack just makes me want to cry, just a very little bit. But yeah, that's I think that's all I got to say about Saga volume 1. I obviously will continue with this series and continue to read and I don't know if I will come back and talk about future volumes. We'll just see. When I when I finish volume two, if I feel the need to talk about it, then I'll make an episode. That's typically what happens with me. Like when I read, we'll use another one of his books, Paper Girls, I really wanted to talk about that each time I finished a volume, but yet I couldn't stop myself from reading the next volume. I mean, I read that entire story in the span of four, five days maybe. And when I was done, my first thought was I should have spaced this out a little. I should have paused between volumes and talked about them on the show. There is something to be said about giving yourself some time between volumes, other than just reading all of them in a short space of time, because I think the normal, the typical human brain can only accept so much input. At any one given time when it comes to story and when you're giving it too much story, much of it kind of floats away by the time you finish. And so when I got done with Paper Girls, I knew I loved it and I knew I wanted to talk about it. But when I started to kind of think about what I wanted to talk about, nothing was really, it's like I had this combination of nothing was leaping to mind. And at the same time, there was so much, it was overwhelming. So I should have spaced that out, which is what I'm going to try to do here. Now, of course, the flip side to that is Paper Girls was a book that I started uh, three times previous before I finished it. I read the first volume three different times. I I, I read it. I put it down and thought, all right, I'm going to I'm going to give myself a little space and I'll come back to this and then never came back to it because I got distracted with everything else that I was reading. And again, that happened. Two, two or three other times before I finally I mean, that's why I read it all in that short amount of time, because I I thought, all right, if I put this down one more time, there's there's a good chance I may not pick it up again. And after a while, I may not want to read it at all because I've read the first volume so many times. So yeah, it's there's a the coins and the flipping and all that stuff. But I think for now, the way I have my comixology app set up, when I when I grabbed because right now, here, here's the weird thing. Here's the weird thing that I do. So I've got the first nine volumes. Here's, a, here's another little peek inside the, the strange way in which my brain works. I now have all nine volumes, thanks to the, the Humble Bundle. And I have an app to read those on. There, there, are, there are apps out there that you can read these kinds of, these, these kinds of files on, the CBR or CBZ files. But I primarily read everything through either my Comixology app, the DC app, or the Marvel app. So I had the nine volumes, but then I learned that the first few volumes are also available for me to read for free through Comixology Unlimited. So I read the first volume in, through Comixology, and, I, I, and then I immediately went out and I borrowed the second volume from Comixology. So that's kind of weird, isn't it? I, I, do this humble bundle. I get all nine, the nine first, the first nine volumes before they took their little break. And then I go borrow the first two volumes from Comixology and read it that way. That's, yeah, that's just, I, I don't know. It's just the, the way I do things. And there really is no explanation to that. But what I've started doing is, so for example, I went out and I borrowed the second volume. I put it in on my shelf there in Comixology and I downloaded it and I have my, my shelf filtered to only books that I have downloaded. And I only have a hand a handful. And so it's every time I open up Comixology, volume two is going to be right there. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to forget it. But yeah, so I'll read it. Whether or not I'll come back and talk about it, that that's another story. But until then, folks, look for the poll. Tell me which book I'm going to read next. Once in Future Volume One, Black Hammer Volume 1, or Something Is Killing the Children, Volume 1. Now speaking of the reason why I read Paper Girls in such a short amount of time all the volumes the same thing basically is is happening with those other three books. I've read volume 1 from all uh, on all three of those before and then just kind of forgot they were there and didn't go any further and I and I really want to. So I'll need to read the vol- volume 1 all over again and you get to decide which one I'm going to do and when we pick that one, then we'll vote over the other two to see which one I'm gonna read third and then which one I'll read fourth. And then we'll start a whole new poll. Doesn't that sound fun? I think that's I've got a lot of books in my in my comicsology that have just been sitting there and uh I need to read. And this is how I'm gonna accomplish that. But until then folks, my name is Steven and I'm just another fanboy. Be nice to each other. Job. <laughs> Say goodbye.